0: Matthew chapter 1 In preparation for this week I've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew uh, trying to identify some consistent themes First theme I picked up on was the theme of kingdom Look at verse 1 The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So who is the first person mentioned in the genealogy after Jesus? David, David, just seeing if you're awake. Uh, Then when you get down to David and following, starting in verse 6, second half of verse 6, there are a bunch of kings mentioned. So what is the significance of that, other than, of course, the fact that This was the genealogy. Those kings are sons of David, right? The Davidic kings down the the Davidic line. Uh, But Jesus is the son of David. He is the long-promised Messiah, the king of kings, the king of God's kingdom forever. This goes back, as many of you know, to God's covenant with David, which was in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promised David that he would have a son who would rule on his throne forever. And this son of David was promised then he would also be God's son. So, that was about a thousand years before Christ. The prophets picked up on this in a number of places a few hundred years later, like in Daniel chapter 2, where we see that God's kingdom would be established forever and uh, in God's time, His kingdom would conquer all other earthly kingdoms. You may remember in Daniel 2, there's the image of the statue and it's got you know, different material on its head and its chest and its legs and its feet. And they stand for different kingdoms and ultimately the rock, which is Christ, and His kingdom uh, comes and crushes that and grows into a mountain. Which means the kingdom of God comes... It topples these other earthly kingdoms and spreads to the ends of the earth. Then, a few hundred years after that, so we have 2 Samuel 7, about a thousand years before Christ. We have the prophets, uh, you know, a few hundred years before Christ. And then when you get to the time of Jesus, uh, we see all of this connection to Him spelled out explicitly, especially in chapter uh, 1... Or 2. Chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel uh, where the angel Gabriel, and you you can turn there if you want to see it, but I'll just mention it briefly. Uh, The angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce the birth of Christ and he uses language from 2 Samuel 7 and from Daniel chapter 2. So what we see As I'm reading through Matthew, I'm thinking about, hey, there's this theme of kingdom. I mean, son of David's, first thing we find out about Jesus. Then there's all these kings mentioned. And one of the things we're supposed to be picking up on is that he is the king of kings. He's the Messiah. Then you go to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in Matthew. You can turn there if you like. The wise men, they come, they say, Where is he who has been born king? of the Jews of course we know he's not king of the Jews only but Jews and Gentiles nonetheless kingdom you move down in chapter 2 Jesus' family flees to Egypt because King Herod is killing all the baby boys to and under why is that? because Jesus is the king and other people are saying as such and Herod the king is threatened who is this king? I'm the king Chapter three opens with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. What was his message? Anybody remember? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see this kingdom theme further developed. Chapter four opens with Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Anybody remember what the last temptation was? it well, throw yourself off the mountain and... No, that was one of the first two. Worship me, but the context—he takes him up on a high mountain and he shows him. It says all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and they—and he said, "These will all be yours if you will worship me." But what was he offering? The kingdoms, right? And uh, little did Satan know that all of the kingdoms of the world would be Jesus's in God's time and in God's way through Jesus's life, death. And resurrection, Revelation 11.15 The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Continuing on in the second half of Matthew 4, Jesus begins His ministry. What is the first thing Matthew records as Jesus having said in His ministry? Same thing John the Baptist said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven... Is at hand. Matthew five is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. How does that start? Anybody remember? Beatitudes. Beatitudes. First one, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. So as I'm reading the early chapters of Matthew, kingdom is on my mind. And then, the next theme that I'm picking up on is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Of course, we know that it is actually right-side up and everything else in the world is upside-down, but I just mean that it, it works inversely from the ways of the world. The upside-down nature of the kingdom. So, a few examples. Back to Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes... This is talking about the way that the kingdom comes into our individual lives. In other words, how we become Christians. And also, how uh, the kingdom continues to come, how we grow as, as Christians. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you think about this in comparison with the ways of the world the world does not look at those who are broken over their sins and say, those are blessed people. Uh, but that's what it means to be poor in spirit, is to be broken over your sin. And when we get convicted over our sin, that is God's blessing to us. That is God's grace to us. That is God's kindness, drawing us to understand who we are and ultimately leading us to understand who He is. That is God's kingdom coming. The world does not look at those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness as those who are blessed because it implies that we don't have that righteousness in and of ourselves. If we hunger and thirst for it, we hunger and thirst for things that are outside of us, right? That we don't presently have. The world doesn't want to admit that there's anything wrong with us as we are. But the truth is, we're not okay. And when we realize that, we get hungry and thirsty for the One who is. The Righteous One, Jesus Christ. And that is God's blessing. That is God's kingdom coming. The world thinks of kingdoms advancing through strength, not weakness. But the kingdom of God advances in and through our weakness. As God's power and His strength are made perfect in our weakness. Alright, another couple ways this theme develops through Matthew and all the Gospels uh, for that matter is that the most religious people, the Pharisees, are the greatest enemies to Jesus. And the poor, the lame, the outcast, the big sinners are all invited in. Now, I think the church We're guilty of getting this one wrong uh, even today because we become high-minded in our religion and we exclude the very kinds of people that Jesus spent His time with and that Jesus welcomed in. Then there's Matthew 9. Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing the sick and the lame and the blind. And the crowds are pressing in. But what kind of crowds are pressing in? Well, full of a bunch of needy people, a bunch of sick people, and a bunch of lame people and blind people, people that have issues, they have needs, big sinners. Hey, I heard he's hanging out with you know, prostitutes and tax collectors. Maybe he would include me. So he looks on these crowds, and he, it says that seeing them, he saw sheep without a shepherd. He calls it a harvest. That's when He tells His disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He'll raise up laborers for the harvest and send them into the harvest. But the kinds of people that were gathered in these crowds, many of them, again, were extremely needy people. Many of them outcast in society because of whatever disease or affliction they had. The world sees a crowd of goats and Jesus sees a crowd of sheep. The world sees a famine. Jesus Sees a harvest. The upside down nature of the kingdom. In chapter 11, as in chapter 5, Jesus says that His followers will be persecuted and hated, flogged, and even killed. Doesn't sound like a real popular movement that is very marketable. In chapter 11, verse 25, He says that the wise of the earth do not understand the gospel, but children do. Doesn't sound sophisticated enough. In chapter 20, we see that the first will be last and the last will be first. Whoever would be great in the kingdom must be a servant because we are followers of Christ and He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Chapter 21, we see that the King of all kings rides in humility, not bearing arms on a stallion or on a chariot, but wearing rags on a donkey. Then, Jesus is betrayed. By a close friend and follower, and he doesn't even do anything about it. I mean, what king doesn't make an example of the traitor, right? He is unjustly arrested, tried, and ultimately crucified. What good is a dead king? What kingdom? The upside down kingdom. The kingdom where God conquers by dying, not by killing. All the other kingdoms of this world, they rise, but they eventually fall. Not God's kingdom. We don't operate with rise and fall, but with fall and rise. We've talked about this in here before, but there is no better day to talk about it again than on Easter Sunday. Fall and rise is how our salvation was accomplished. Again, you're going to want to hear rise and fall. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying fall and rise. Fall and rise is how our salvation was accomplished. Fall and rise is how our salvation gets applied throughout our lives and how the kingdom of God advances in the world. So let's think about those three things. In terms of how our salvation was accomplished, think about this morning, 2,000 years ago, the bitter grief that the disciples were still in on that Sunday morning after Jesus had been crucified just a couple days prior. Uh, for those of you who have lost a loved one, you know that the pain doesn't go away a couple days later. If anything, the action sort of slows down so that you now have time to really begin to feel the pain. And, and maybe even be more grieved as you're exhausted through what comes of you know just the action of death and, and burial and gathering and all of that. Now is when the grief is really setting in. And and this is a unique grief. They were banking all of their hopes on Christ. Not just for this life, but for all eternity. They had given up everything to follow Him. Jesus' followers, His family, they were in the throes of bitter grief. Not to mention they are hated, fearing for their own life, hiding. Think about Peter. He... uh, he was under great guilt, because what was his last interaction with the Lord? He denied him three times, as predicted. He loved Jesus. He knew who he was, but when push came to shove, he denied him three times. Think about the guilt. I mean, we all hear of the horrible circumstances of someone has a fight with a loved one and then they pass away. Um, that's a nightmare. Well, I think this is even compounded from there because this is the Lord. And what He's thinking about what this must mean for His own salvation. Think about Mary. Not only did she lose her Lord, she lost her son. And she watched Him die this gruesome, horrific death. Turn to Luke chapter 24. I want to read to you from there because Peter is mentioned and I just am always drawn to him. I guess I feel a lot like him sometimes. Starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Of course he ran. I mean, this is like the second chance of all second chances. He's thinking about what this could possibly mean. Maybe I'll get a chance to talk to the Lord. And uh, maybe, maybe at that moment he's remembering some of the things that he had been told. But the point I want you to see is that they had gone home from the funeral. The grieving process was in full swing. If anything, it was worse a couple days later. But up from the grave, He rose again. Jesus died to pay the full penalty for our sins under the wrath of God so that there is no more wrath for those who believe. He rose for our justification so that all who put their faith in Him would be right with God forever. Without the resurrection, we don't have any hope. Without the resurrection, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied and we are still in our sins. But He did rise. Sin was slaughtered. Death died. And now, Jesus stands in victory over Satan, sin, and death. Your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ. The salvation of God's people was fully and finally accomplished on the cross. It was declared to be so in the resurrection. And our salvation has been and is being and will be applied throughout history with that same pattern of death and resurrection, fall and rise. So I want to think about three ways that our salvation is applied in fall and rise. They are conversion, growth, and glory. About conversion, you go back to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. This is talking about, on the one hand, when we become Christians. This is what it looks like when the kingdom comes in. When our eyes are opened. When we become a part of the kingdom. And, uh, you know, All of us, no matter how old we were or how much we knew, you come to Christ with some degree of brokenness, with with some recognition of your own limitation, of your own sin, of your own weakness. And uh, whether or not we realized it then, we are, in coming to Christ, losing our life. It is not ours any longer. It's His. Of course, we're gaining so much more. This is really a good deal. Uh, But there is still a falling and rising going on. The old man dying, the new man coming to life in Christ, and while this is ultimately glorious, it actually can be fairly devastating at first. Um, So, I have a friend uh, who has recently come to Christ, and he has told me, you know, he came out of a similar lifestyle that I did, um and it's been uh, you know Rosaria Butterfield calls her conversion a train wreck and I'm always comforted by that because I felt like mine was similar but uh this man has said something similar if not using the same words but just saying it's it's been very unsettling very unnerving uh to to essentially lose your life and feel like everything goes with that and not knowing where God is taking you. It's kind of like Abraham, you know. You lose everything that's familiar to you and I'm taking you to a land that you've never seen. You, you know it's good, you know He's God, but you've never been there. And it's a little scary. Um, so I think it's just been a good you know, example to me of fall and, and rise in conversion. Also, in our sanctification, in our growth in godliness, Here again, you go back to the Beatitudes, you see brokenness over sin, you see turning to Jesus in humiliation, hungry and thirsty for His righteousness. Not only is this the way we come to Christ initially, this is the way we grow in Christ, convicted over our sin, humbled, broken, meek, but God brings the life. Like We're dying all the time. The old, old man, which is you know still us, uh, we still identify with that, and yet we're, it's being put to death, and then God brings resurrection. I mean, who in here, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think to yourself, who doesn't feel like they should be past a certain sin that you keep struggling with? Who doesn't feel like you should be a little more advanced in the Christian life? You know, like I've been at this thing a long time. I feel like I ought to have made a a little more progress than I have. It's hard. It's humbling when your sin is before you. Turn to Christ. Your sins are forgiven. It may feel like death. But we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that in His time, the Lord will bring the resurrection life, even in our mortal bodies. There will be degrees of that now. And ultimately, we hope for it later. But a significant way that we participate in our growth in godliness is by seeking to die. Uh, We're trying to kill those sinful parts of us that cling so closely, whether they're fleshly lusts or selfish ambitions or whatever they are, we are seeking to try to kill them. We're also seeking to try to give ourselves away in sacrifice for others. But we're selfish. It's another sort of death. We die, God brings the life in His time and in His way. So, Something we talk about in here often, but it's one that we need to be reminded of often. Here's a very practical application for you. Confess your sins each and every time that you're aware of them, to God and to whoever was uh, whoever you sinned against. every time you're aware of your sin. Every time that God brings some measure of conviction, doesn't mean you feel just smothered in guilt, but if you know you just sinned, confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to whoever you just sinned against. Rehearse the gospel, believe the gospel, confess your belief in the gospel. Confessing sin is embarrassing, but we trust the Lord. We we believe that he paid for that, right? This is the way we grow. Um, we have a staff prayer meeting every Sunday morning at 8:45, and I was overwhelmed this morning of, I feel like uh, today and over the last week or two, uh, I've just more I'm seeing my personal sin more than I have in a long time. Uh, it's not a good feeling. It's not something you like to see. That's some of the discouragement comes, like surely I should have been past some of this. Uh, but I think about God's kindness in the timing of that. You know, whether it's sinning against my wife or sinning against my kids. I mean, these are the people that I'm around a lot. But just the sin that pulses through my flesh and, you know, you just... There's wickedness that still remains. But... I was thinking about God's kindness in the fact that if ever there is a time to consider the gospel in light of that darkness, it's now. It's Good Friday and Easter Sunday. My sins were paid for. He rose from the grave to declare that to be fact and uh, to declare the fact that we are gods, that we are right with Him That all of that sin has been dealt with and that we will be in glory with Him forever. There will come a day when that flesh no longer clings so closely. It will be gone and it will be in the grave. Praise Jesus. Until then, how do we fight? Every time you've made aware of it, you have to confess it. Not because we're earning something, but because that's the way we grow in humility realizing this is still who I am in and of myself, but I am not my own. I am in Christ. And we have to go through that over and over and over again. That's how we grow, fall, and rise. Also, glory. We are literally going to die. Every single one of us is going to be put in the ground. Some of us, much sooner than we think. But we must view this through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. We need to view all of life through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. He rose, so too will we. On that day when we die, we will actually be most fully alive with the Lord in paradise. That doesn't mean we're necessarily going to handle death gracefully. Uh, in this line of work, you see that, you know, death is always an enemy, and sometimes even the strongest believers face death with great fear and fear. And trembling, but also with some faith. And uh, God will provide the strength that we need to endure it faithfully, to continue to trust in Him, fall and rise. Fall and rise is how our salvation was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. Fall and rise is how our salvation gets applied throughout our lives. And fall and rise is also the pattern of the kingdom advancing in the world. So, starting with Jesus' death and resurrection, those were the events that secured kingdom victory. Then, 11 of the 12 disciples died a horrific death, uh, whether being hung on a cross or their heads cut off, uh, all of them horrific only John is said to have died of old age, but that was after he spent time as a prisoner in isolation on the island of Patmos. So that's how the kingdom started, uh, at least in the, you know, in the church. Don't stop there, though, because you extend this through the first couple few hundred years of church history. There were ten waves of major persecution under the Roman regime, starting with Nero in the mid-60s A.D., all the way to Diocletian in 303 A.D. It was not until Constantine became emperor in 306 that the Christians enjoyed some measure of freedom. For the first 275 years of the church, there were ten major waves of persecution where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed for their faith. Who knows how many martyrs? They were? If they weren't killed, they were pushed to the margins in society. And yet, where is the Roman Empire now? We read about it in textbooks. The great world powers, they rise and they fall. But the Christian church, we fall and we rise. ISIS thinks that it can extinguish the church by killing us off. They need to read their history. The Lord Jesus is the King of kings. He is the King of God's kingdom and will inherit all kingdoms. All power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. His kingdom will never fade. The kingdoms of the earth will fade, but God's kingdom will not. Ours will be the last kingdom standing. You know where the church is growing like wildfire right now? How about China? China. The communists tried to stamp out the church not too long ago and are still trying to some degree. How's that going? Well, maybe they've had some success, but they will not prevail. And also in Iran, the great bastion of Islam, there is a revival happening in Iran. There is great uh, literature about that on the Gospel Coalition that you can find. There's a couple different articles and it's really fascinating to think about, but Hundreds of thousands of new believers in Iran in the last 20 years. They've had more converts to Christianity in the last 20 years than in the last, like, 15 centuries. Uh, It's an amazing movement of God, not only there, but all throughout the Muslim world. As for our country, you look out at the world and things are getting worse. Uh, We may not have communism yet. Islam may still be a uh, small minority for now, but secularism hates us just as much. It may not try to kill us, but it's at least going to try to get us to the margins of society. We can almost bet on it that in our lifetime, persecution will increase greatly for Christians, and it already has in some places. What do we do? We have to view all of these things through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. Though we fall, in God's time, we will rise. Push us to the margins of society. Why don't you? Historically, we work better from over there. Helps us simplify our lives and refocus on God's mission. And the mission will not fail. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. How do we know? Because He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and He rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, You are holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of Your glory. We are sinners through and through, and we do not deserve to be in your presence and indeed we deserve your wrath your judgment but God because you loved us and because of your great mercy and grace you sent your son in our place and we thank you we could not thank you enough we can't thank you enough Jesus that we will never know what it costs you to take the wrath of God because we truly will never know the wrath of God thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for taking each and every one of our sins on that cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and thank you for new life in the power of the resurrection. Fill us, Holy Spirit. We believe these things. Help our unbelief. Empower us to follow you in the paths that you have cut for us to worship You and serve You and love You and love one another, love our neighbors, even our enemies. Lord, that this great gospel might go to the ends of the earth. Use us, Lord, to minister to others. We pray now that You would fill our hearts with joy this great salvation that has been accomplished for us and is being applied in and through us. Lord, we pray for the sermon that was just preached in the sanctuary, uh, that you would plant good seed and good soil, keep Satan and his servants, their works and effects away. Let, Let those crops not be drowned out by fear, persecution, trials, the cares and concerns of this life. But would you grow in all of us for that service and this one coming good crops in our hearts that bear good fruit to eternal life, even for generations to come in this church, in this community, and beyond. Lord, we think of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, and we thank You that we are members of Your kingdom, members of Your family. What greater privilege there is none. Thank You that You have made us Your own. It is our delight Uh, to return our lives in joyful service to You. Pray that You would root us and build us in the hope that we have in Christ, and we pray in His name. Amen.